Let's bow together. Father, we again come before you and we are so thankful for your love for us. We are so thankful for your kindness, your mercy, your grace, all manifest in having given your son for us, having sent him to die for our sins. And we thank you that he loved us so much that he came and willingly paid the penalty for our sins on the cross and died and rose from the dead. Father, I thank you that uh, you are gracious and kind and merciful and that you use your word to grow us. And I pray you would use your word this morning to grow us in respect to salvation so that we would become more and more like Jesus, your son. Pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, we are a very forgetful people. Um, we need to have our little notes on our phones to have lists of things to do. We have to have uh, reminders, whatever it might be. We'll ask people, hey, remind me to do that. Remind me to do that. The reality is we forget things. And uh, not only do we forget the basic things of this life, but we forget the things of the Lord. We can practically speaking forget things that we know very well in a practical basis. And so we see in Scripture at times uh, the Lord using his word to specifically remind us. And we're going to see a passage today that we are to be reminded and we are told that we are to be reminded of some specifics. As we continue our break before we start our next book, I was telling someone that uh, often as I'm praying about what to do, I'm thinking about, first of all, what do I need to hear again? What is it that I need to learn? What is it that I need to, how do I need to grow? What do I need to be reminded of? And then from there, praying the Lord usually leads to a passage that will affect me first, and then hopefully will affect all of you. Uh, How are we to behave in an ungodly world? How are we to be that? We're in an ungodly world. I don't know if you know that, but we are. There's a lot of sin out there. There's a lot of sinners. There's a lot of unsaved people doing a lot of very evil things out there. How are we going to, how are we to behave? Should we be standing on the street corners yelling repent? Should we be holding signs like God hates gays or something like that? Or should we be, uh, having mass evangelism efforts with uh, music to prime, worldly music to get everybody to want to hear God's word? How should we be uh, interacting with non-believers? Should we be trying to convince these non-believers that creation is, is true and not evolution? What should we be doing? Should we be isolating ourselves from the wicked? Should we stay away from them? What are we to do? Well, folks, we as believers are tempted maybe to do many of these things. Uh, Some of them can be not biblical, and some of them might be. Uh, But we can be tempted to do things that are really uh, obscure and maybe not clear, and to the exclusion of the things in Scripture that are very clear. We're going to see in Scripture, God is very clear on how we are to behave in the midst of this ungodly world. And I believe we need to be reminded of it. I do, at least. And so then, turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, and we're going to see that we have a gracious reminder of how to behave and why. And we need to be reminded, I do, and I know you do also. Let me share the, the, the context of the, of the book of Titus. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing his true child in the faith, Titus, his trusted companion, 
Uh, he has indicated in chapter 1 that he left him behind in Crete, that Mediterranean island, in order to set in order what remains and to appoint elders in every city. He was left behind in this island and was given instruction concerning leadership in the church. He was to appoint elders, not just any man, but those men who were those who were who met Christ-like qualifications laid out by the Apostle Paul to Titus, godly men who would hold fast the faithful word uh, and and uh, be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Because there are many uh, rebellious men and empty talkers that must be silenced. And Paul gave a picture of those contradictors who must be silenced. And ultimately that those contradictors are worthless, disobedient. They're worthless for any good deed, chapter 1. Then he came into chapter 2 and shared how we are to be and why, believers. And he gave different areas. Uh, Titus was to speak things only fitting for sound doctrine, healthy teaching, and he gave, and he gave thus, Paul gave Titus the sound doctrine for the church, for older men, for older women, for younger women, for younger men, for bond slaves, how we are to be in Christ. And then he made it very clear how it is we are to be this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live righteously and upright in this present age. It's through the salvation we have in Christ, this grace actually working in us now, the grace of Christ, we're able to be different. It's through what Christ has done for us. And then within that, uh, we come to our passage uh, because at the end of chapter 2, he talked about that we were redeemed, that we would be ultimately purified and zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. There's a lot of do-gooders out there, but are there those who are truly zealous for good deeds, as God defines it in his word? So in chapter 3, we come to a point where now, how are these deeds to be manifest in the midst of an ungodly world? In an ungodly world. So with that in mind, let's read together. And I'm going to uh, basically... Uh, share from verses 1 through 8, even though we're only going to look at 1 through 5, okay? Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. And that's where we'll stop today, but I want to keep reading. Uh, Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Now, when we went through this passage back in 2008, went through Titus, 
And we spent four messages on these first five verses, so we're going to be going a little faster today, just kind of summarizing a lot of that. And in this first portion concerning what we're going to see, there's two, two, two spheres in which we are to be manifesting uh, righteous behavior, good deeds. One is within government and towards government. The other one is towards all men. And I'm just going to briefly review that portion on government. You can get our, our teaching on 1 Peter 2 and teaching on this portion if you want to look at it more in depth because I go quite a bit in depth on that. Um, but uh, let's take a look here. And we're going to see that we need to let God, through his word, remind us how to behave. We let him remind us how to behave. Remember the Lord Jesus said, abide in me and my words in you, right? We need to rest in Jesus and his word needs to rest in us. And then we will uh, 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 do what he wants us to do. We will, we will bring forth those deeds that he has ordained from the foundation of the earth. So here, verse 1, remind them to be subject to, to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And we have a, a, a structure here. Remind them, and it's actually you, singular, you, Titus, you remind them, that's speaking to the believers in Crete, you remind them uh, to do these things, to be subject, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, to be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So here again, we have two spheres. Uh, the first sphere uh, speaks about how we are to be in the context of government. What is our behavior to be? So he says, remind them. And imp- implied in the idea of a reminder is that they have already understood and known these truths we are going to see today. And that's implied for us, I believe, too. We know these truths. We understand them. We need to be reminded of them. Again, we are a very forgetful people. So what is our behavior to be like in relationship to government? We have some bad government these days. We've got some bad stuff going on, right? There's a few righteous men, I see a few righteous leaders, uh, but I see a lot of unrighteousness. I believe you see it too. It's out there. Well, how are we to, how are we to respond? Again, I'm not going to go through this like we did in 1 Peter 2 and other places, and Titus actually went through it earlier, but we see that we are to be in subjection to rulers and authority. That's government. Indeed, we see in Scripture that God declares that all authority is ordained by him, and he uses them as his ministers and servants, Romans 13. Even evil governments and evil men like Pilate and Caesar, John 19. And we see in 1 Peter 2 that he uses our righteous response uh, in, in Righteous response of his people in submission to him uh, under, under unrighteous governments, ungodly governments, to cause slandering unbelievers to eventually give him glory as they are saved. He's using our response in the midst to wickedness to bring about opportunities for the gospel that people might be saved. But you say, well, how do we change these wicked governments apart from taking action? We need to take action, righteous action. Well, sometimes we miss the point. Uh, uh, Just like with Christ, uh, he submitted himself to the Father. He didn't revile in return. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he suffered and died for our sins doing the Father's will. So we need to trust the Lord and understand that our suffering will bring about redemptive opportunities as we trust Christ. 
But how can we change? Well, we need to submit and obey, and we need to honor our leaders, by the way. So we need to speak badly of them. We can speak truthfully, but we need to be careful we are not dishonoring. That's something we can fall into very easily, right? So how do we change them? How do we change uh, government when it's so terrible? How does it change? Well, First Timothy 2 is the very clear passage that tells us how we're to change things. Obviously, it's in the context of prayer. First Timothy 2 First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. First Timothy 2. For kings and all who are in authority. That would be uh, bad kings at that time, by the way. For all in authority. Uh, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet, quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. We are living in the time of salvation. We are not living in the time of judgment. God will judge, but he is saving people. Uh, he is not uh, forgetful about his judgment, but he is patient that, that none would perish, right? He wants them to be saved. And so we need to be praying for our ungodly leaders to be saved. We need to be praying for our leaders diligently. And it doesn't mean that we can't speak the truth in love. It doesn't mean that we don't use the means in which God has given us a privilege and a right as citizens to vote, whatever it might be. It doesn't mean we don't use that as good stewards. But primarily, it is through God acting in answering our prayers that people's hearts are changed and that we can live a peaceful and quiet life. So then how are we to live in the midst of an ungodly world led by ungodly governments? Uh, we should already know this truth. We should, we're to be reminded of it. Uh, we're to continually submit, obey, honor, and pray, and that's it. And so now with the rest of this passage where I'd like to spend the rest of our time, where it talks about how we are to treat all men, and that all men, as we'll see, is speaking of unbelievers. How much more believers, obviously, but unbelievers, Right. So all these things are going to be related to unbelievers, but how much more should I be treating my wife? Are you treating your husband? Whatever it might be, or each one of us together, how much more should that be in the context of love for one another? Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. I go, "Uh uh-oh. Right? I read that and I go, ooh, sometimes I've been a little contentious politically maybe or something or whatever it might be. You know, kind of thinking that way. Maybe I've said things that aren't, aren't right about somebody. Ooh, right? We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. He says we're reminded how we are to behave towards all men. All men. Now, as I've alluded to already, uh, I believe he's speaking of the unbelieving world here in this sphere of all men. Because he says in verse 3, after sharing this, for we also once were foolish ourselves. So he's saying the all men are those who are foolish and unbelievers. This is how we are to behave in an ungodly world. You want to know how to behave around non-believers around you? This is our reminder of how we are to do it. This is our reminder of how we are to do it. So he says here, first of all, we're to be ready for every good deed, to mind no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For all men. So how are we to treat non-believers? 
Again, we are to be reminded, and notice this first, to be ready for every good deed. Someone says be ready for something, right? You get ready. You're thinking about it. You're preparing for it. You need to be ready for that exam, right? You need to be ready for, for whatever it might be. You need to be ready. You need to prepare for every good deed. And this leads to the question, well, what are good deeds? What is good? What is good? Well, from God's perspective, we gain insight. In Mark chapter 10, we have a gentleman coming up to the Lord Jesus. And uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 17, and he was sitting up on a journey, speaking of Jesus, and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Uh, No one is good except God alone. He's basically exposing this gentleman that he doesn't believe that Jesus is God, first of all. Why do you call me good if no one is good but God alone? Why would you call me good? You see? But here we see that no one is good except God alone. And the reason why I bring this up is because all true goodness comes from God. It comes from God. We've got a lot of phony baloney human goodness. We've got a lot of goody two-shoe stuff where God will reveal the motives of the heart. That's not our job. He'll show all that. But godliness brings about, we'll see that God is the one that brings about goodness. Uh, take a look at some, let's take a look at some passages in the Psalms that point out uh, goodness from God's perspective. Take a look at Psalm 14. Psalm 14. Psalm 14, 2 and 3. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They all have turned aside. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Apart from God's intervention, no one does good, not even one. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in thee. I said to the Lord, thou art my Lord, I have no good besides thee. Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice and teaches the humble his way. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see, David writes, that the Lord is good. Taste and see, the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It's emphatic. Psalm 86, verse 4. Make glad the soul of thy servant, for to thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For thou art good and ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness who call, who all call upon thee. You see, God's goodness, when Moses asked God, show me thy glory, uh, the Lord said, I'll have all my goodness pass by you. He talked about the Lord who forgives, whose loving kindness is everlasting. You see, his goodness manifests in the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 100, verse 4, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, and give thanks to him, for the Lord is good. The Lord's good. His loving kindness is everlasting, his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. It's good sometimes to be afflicted, by the way. Thou art good and doest good. You're good and you doest good. Teach me thy statutes. 
You see, God is characterized by good, and his works are characterized by goodness. They are good. And we also see that his redeemed people are good, that we are good when we abide in him. We manifest his character. We can only bring about good deeds when we are abiding in a good God, and he is functioning through us. We know that apart from the Lord, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he says here, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand which that, uh, that we should walk in them. We're created to walk into those good deeds that God has ordained uh, previously. And that's as we abide in Jesus Christ. He brings that about. And in Titus, it is the theme, important part, a main theme of this book in Titus is, is, is good deeds. Remember we saw in chapter 1 that the bad guys that are to be silenced through elders who hold fast the faithful word, uh, the bad guys, it says in verse 16, they profess to know God, but their deeds, by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deed. The false guys are worthless for any good deed. Chapter 2, verse 7, Titus is commanded, in all things, show himself an example of good deeds. Well, Paul's telling you what to do. Teach the word, Titus. Share the sound doctrine. Do the right thing, right? Be an example of good deeds. And we know that a zealousness for good deeds comes from a true relationship with Jesus. As we are looking for the blessed hope and appearing the glory of our great God and Savior, Titus 2.13, who gave Jesus Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself, that means clean up for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We should be zealous to do good, to do good from God's perspective, by the way, from God's perspective. We see in our verse we're commanded to be ready for every good deed. And what about uh, Titus Titus uh, three eight? This is a trustworthy statement concerning the things which I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These are good and profitable for man. Titus three fourteen, and let our people, that's believers. Also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they may not be unfruitful. We should love one another to the point that we are doing good to one another in the context of abiding in Christ. We see a need and we should be hopping to to, to, to take care of those needs. Uh, we should be considering how to stimulate one another to, 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 to good deeds, right? To love and good deeds. We should be doing that, Right? So truly good deeds and a zealousness for such, by the way, not a false zealousness, not a phony religiousness to make people think you're religious, to, 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 to make your conscience feel better because of your sinfulness. A true uh, zealousness for good deeds stems from a relationship with Christ in whom, in whom one is redeemed, purified through faith in Christ alone. And that will bring about, as we abide in Jesus, a zealousness for his goodness to be manifest in us, to walk in those good deeds, what he has prepared. You see, apart from him, we can do nothing. So zealousness for good deeds are being ready for every good deed. How am I ready for every good deed? I'm abiding in Jesus. How am I ready for every good deed? I'm trusting in Jesus. 
I'm filling my heart with his word. I'm abiding in him and his word is abiding in me. And I'm ready. I'm aware that he might use me in the context of his instruction for me and his will for me concerning you and others, especially non-believers. You see, it is his word alone that equips us for every good deed. It equips us for every good deed. His word equips us. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, that's written word, is inspired or God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The term equipped spoke of uh, fully outfitting a rescue boat and everything it needed to do the job. Fully equipped. God gives us everything we need for every good work through his word. You see, so if you want to know about good deeds and good works, it comes through his word working out in us. That's where you're going to have good deeds. That's where you're going to see it. So remind them, back in our passage, to be subject to authorities, rulers to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. The term ready means being prepared. So if I need to be ready for every good deed, I need the word working in my heart in advance. I need to be walking with Jesus, right? Right? If I'm in the flesh, I'm not ready for any good deed. I'm ready for sin. Right? I'm already sinning. Right? So then, ready for every good deed. Prepared for every good deed. And this is the way we ought to be thinking when we are around everyone. You know, it's interesting. I talk about the culture here in this area where we moved to. There's a Christian culture here, and there's a lot of believers. And I notice how kind people are here. Well, that stems from God working in their hearts. That's the way we should be, Right? Now, we should be that way no matter what area we live in, right? We should be ready for every good deed. We should be kind-hearted as we're going to see. We should have a different demeanor towards people. But that doesn't happen unless we're ready and we're abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to abide in him. Okay, so notice here we're to be ready for every good deed. But notice we're to be reminded to do something else. Now, here we have the, the don't-dos, okay? Be ready for this. Now, here's what we shouldn't do. He says here, to malign, verse 2, no one. We're to remind people, remind each other, remind the Lord. Titus was to remind them, and we're to be reminded here, to malign no one. The term malign comes from the Greek word blasphemo. It speaks of speaking injuriously. Speaking injuriously. It can refer to slander, defamation, sinful dishonoring of someone's reputation, insulting, speaking evil, Wicked, slanderous speech that is intended to injure someone, insult someone, dishonor someone. We're to honor all men, but we can speak in ways that dishonor men, right? It's really easy. It's easy to fall into it. We see the wickedness of man. We see the wickedness of people and how hateful they are and how, how evil they are and we want to speak bad. Well, it doesn't mean we don't point out the sin. Speak truth and love. We point it out. They need salvation. They need Jesus Christ. They're going to hell. There is judgment coming for sin. But we can have a wrong attitude. We can speak injuriously, and we are to malign no one. Paul's not telling us not to speak. He would have just said, just don't say anything, right? He's saying we should malign no one. Brothers and sisters, do you say anything that's intended to slander or injure anyone, intended to insult or dishonor? If we do, we need to be reminded to not do so, to not do so. Now, does that... Does that mean we never say anything bad about anybody? Well, no, we're just not to malign. We do speak the truth in love. Jesus uh, spoke about the Pharisees, didn't he? He didn't malign them. He confronted them and warned them with the truth, right? 
He didn't speak injuriously. He spoke truthfully in a righteous context as God confronting them, right? God in human flesh. Uh, there are times where the Apostle Paul spoke very straightforward concerning people's sin. There are times when he did so, inspired by the Spirit, led by the Spirit of God. We see that. But we are not to malign anyone. We're not to malign anyone. And some of us need to confess how we speak to those who don't know Christ. I think we fall into it. I think we do. I have. You see the evil. I saw a story about some some teacher in California who says that children in preschool should be taught sexualized things. It, I'm tempted to malign him. But what I need to do is pray that God would judge him or he would be saved. That the government would take care of this evil, Right. We're tempted through hearing wicked things to malign people. We are to malign no one. But we can speak the truth in our desire for them to be saved or judged, that they would stop that wickedness of destroying our culture and our children, right? Whatever it might be. But malign no one. We're to speak in a, in a, in a righteous way. We're to speak in a gracious way. You know, grace speaks of unmerited favor. You know, if someone treats you, you know, terribly at the, at, at the drive-through and we're tempted to snap back, right? No. Speak in a way that's gracious back to them, whatever it might be. Or at the store, or whatever it might be. They don't deserve gracious speech, but God gives us what we don't deserve in His grace towards us. Passage to think about. We read it earlier. Colossians 4, 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outside. That's biblical wisdom. Thinking about God's Word towards those who don't know the Lord making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how should we respond to each person. How do I respond with grace? Not snapping back. Now, we fail, right? We should, we should, we should be reminded. We need to be reminded, right? We need to be reminded. Uh, and I find it as we are trusting and walking in Christ, our speech is going to be gracious towards people, right? Right? Unless we get... Our, our own internal offense or whatever it might be, we start being self-focused and sinful. So our speech is to be seasoned with salt, seasoned like salt with grace as like salt, but we are to malign no one, to malign no one. You see, what makes our speech different than those who don't know Christ is it should be absent of slander and it should be flavored with grace, flavored with grace. So then, we are to be reminded to continually, habitually be ready for every good deed, to be prepared. And we are also to malign no one. And notice, it says here also, we're to do, we're to not do some other things. We are to be uncontentious. Look at our passage, verse 2, to malign no one, to be uncontentious. Now, how much more with us, each other as believers, right? Uh, but uh, certainly this is towards non-believers. To line on to be uncontentious. And then notice it says to be gentle. It literally, literally in the Greek it's to be gentle there. It says gentle. You could, you could put in to be there. It literally says that. And then we have a clause that encompasses these three. To be, mind no one, to be uncontentious, to gentle, showing every consideration for all men. It, it kind of envelops those commands, okay? And we'll look at that in a minute. So here we're reminded of two things. To be uncontentious and gentle and showing every consideration for all men in that context. Now, the term uncontentious comes from the Greek word ah, machos. The ah negates it. Uh, ah, millennials, they don't believe in a millennium, right? 
uh, uh, well, there is a millennium, by the way. Newsflash, God's word says so. But uh, ah, ah machas, it means a negation of the term mache, which spoke of a physical fight, uh, a contest with weapons. It speaks of strife and disputes and quarrels. We're not to be in people's faces. And as men, we can be tough guys, right? You know, someone cuts us off and we're like, ah, you know, that's the wrong thing. We're not to be that way. We're not to be that way. We're to be uncontentious. And I need to be reminded of that. And you need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that. We are to be avoiding to not be in strife and quarrels. We're not to be quarrelsome. We're not to be contentious. Think about James chapter 4. James says very clearly, what's the source of your quarrels? Hey, you want to know why you're quarreling? What is the source of your quarrels and matches your conflicts among you? What's the source? Is not the source your pleasures or your desires or your will, you could say, that wage war in your members? You lust, or that's a negative sense, you desire negatively, and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight, and that's our word, and quarrel, and you do not have because you do not ask. He says later on, you ask, you don't have because you ask, you ask, but you ask with the wrong motives. It's to spend it on your own uh, desires. We are not to be contentious. We are not to be contentious with the world. Don't contend with the world. Don't do so. Titus said later on to, uh, or Paul said later on to Titus in verse 9, but shun foolish controversies, controversies, genealogies, and strife and disputes. Same thing, disputing, contending, right? About the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. Don't contend over doctrine. Don't fight over scripture. Don't do it. It's worthless. It's, it's not profitable. 2 Timothy 2.22, it's a good one to remember. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce mache, they produce quarrels. Refuse it. Let me share a couple proverbs that are helpful too, that help to remind us to not be contentious, to not be contentious. Certainly there's all the passages about a contentious woman. There's also a contentious man in there too, Proverbs, you see that. But these are a little different, but they help us see how not to be contentious. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. You see, if I'm ready for every good deed, I'm getting ready. I'm thinking in advance, I need to respond gently. If you know the circumstances that might be quarrelsome, you think of it in advance. you got it in your mind. Oh, gentle answer turns away wrath. Gentle answer turns away wrath. Help me, Lord. Right? Um says here, gentleness, but harsh words stir up anger. The tongue of the wise, 15.2, the next verse, makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spits folly, spouts folly. Proverbs 15.18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger pacifies contention. By the way, there's a lot of angers underneath that strife, by the way. Um, Proverbs 26.4, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. We are to be uncontentious. There's no room for it, especially towards non-believers. You see, yes, we know the truth. Yes, they are wrong. Yes, they malign us. Yes, they are evil. Uh, but we're going to see we were just like them. And God was gracious to them, bringing salvation. 
And we need to be gracious to them, bringing opportunities of salvation also through our righteous behavior. Jesus said, let your light shine in such a way that they might see your good deeds and glorify my Father who is in heaven. Let it shine in such a way. That means we're thinking about it. We're trusting the Lord. We're allowing him to respond through us. So then we're to be uncontentious. But notice in peril, he says that we are to be gentle. Gentle. Now, there's two different terms, or a few terms translated gentle in Scripture, and this one kind of speaks a little more than the term gentleness in general. It has a little more to it. It really speaks of a gentle yielding, a forbearing involved in that gentleness. Not only are you gentle, but you're kind of giving up your rights in that. You're, you're, you're yielding. You're yielding. One pastor writes, the word indicates the willingness to give up personal rights and to show consideration, gentleness, and kindness to other people. It speaks of a gentle yielding of one's own rights. And folks, for, let me remind you that gentleness does not originate from us. Second Corinthians 10.1, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness, and here's our word, gentleness of Christ. Gentleness of Christ. This is this yielding, this gentle yielding. We see here in uh, James chapter 3, it's a characteristic of God's wisdom. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then reasonable full of good fruits, mercy and good fruits, wavering without hypocrisy. The same word is used in Philippians 4, 5. Let your forbearing spirit, that's really forbearing spirit, it's just one word. Let your yielding gentleness be made known to all men. Why? For the Lord is near. You see, if the Lord is near and you know it, you don't have to hold your rights because he's holding to them for you. He's going to take care of it. He's going to take care of it. You're trusting in him. You're trusting in him. So rather than being contentious, there is a gentle yielding of one's rights. I'm not talking about a doormat. I'm talking about being like Jesus Christ. Truthful, loving, right? Gracious, kind, gentle. Gentle. We're to be gentle and uncontentious. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle. And then notice this, this, this phrase envelops those last two terms. Showing every consideration for all men. The term showing means demonstrating or proving. Giving outward proof. Outward proof. Giving outward proof of what? Of consideration for all men. Now I like the way the New King James uh, translates this on this passage. Because it's uh, not just, they say, our passage says for all men, but it literally should be translated to all men, towards all men. That makes it really more, more, more vivid. Every consideration in the direction towards all men. That's where it's towards. That's the sphere in which it goes. We should be continually, habitually demonstrating by our actions consideration towards all men. Consideration. Now, this word consideration is an interesting word. It's usually translated gentle or meekness or considerate. It speaks of strength under control. And now meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control. It's strength that accommodates another's weakness. The world is weak. They can't do anything. They don't have Christ. They need a Savior. There's every consideration. They need Jesus. That's what they need. I'm considering that reality and I'm responding with gentleness. And the only passage where Jesus tells about himself and his own character personally, Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. 
take my yoke upon you and learn from me, which we need to learn, right? Um, for I am gentle, that's this word, and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my load is light. We're to be gentle, showing consideration to all men. We are so tempted in this current Christian culture to expect everyone who is not a believer to act like a believer or to have the morals of a believer. I'm not saying that shouldn't, that you can't say that's wrong. The, the guy teaching preschool kids about sexuality, that's wrong. That is evil. But we, he can't change. Now we can, he can be restrained by law, which is what we praise and hope God would do that. But he's not going to change until Christ changes him, right? He's a savior. He's a savior. You see, we want to hold to our rights, but yet we need to yield at times. But you say, how do we make the gospel known? Well, it's so simple. You see, when non-believers see the genuine life of Christ, not some phony baloney do-gooder stuff, but the genuine life of Christ in us, they see we're not weary and heavy laden. They recognize his gentleness in us. They see we have hope because he's the Lord of our hearts then they might ask us why we have hope. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Part of the theme of 1 Peter is that in suffering, God opens redemptive opportunities. He opens redemptive opportunities that they might turn and glorify God on the day of visitation, the day he visits them with the truth. We might do so. 1 Peter 3.14 But even if you should, I like that, but even, it's not always, right? <laughs> It's, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. So don't fear and get all upset. But here's what you do instead when you're intimidated. Here's what you do when you're suffering for Christ. Here's what you do instead. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That means I'm setting him apart as the Lord of my heart. Okay? Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Be ready to share gentleness and reasonableness, right? Reverence. Be ready to share the hope. Why do you have hope? Why are you acting differently Believe me, I notice it around here. There are Christians where I notice different behavior. Notice it. That should be the way it is around us as we abide in Jesus Christ. Not because we're doing it, but because he's doing it through us. We should be gentle. We should be considering everyone's weakness in that context. We should be considerate to all men. Are you considerate? Do you have consideration towards all men, do you? Well, we're told that we're supposed to. We're to be reminded to do so, right? But you say some people are so annoying, right? Some people are so sinful. Yes, they are. And that may be us at times, right? And we would want that consideration towards us, wouldn't we? Absolutely. And the Lord is that way towards us. So then, we understand. We, we, need to, we, need to, we understand we're ready for every good deed. We understand we're to be uncontentious. We understand we're to be forbearing, yielding our rights, gentle. We're to be meek in general, that our lives demonstrate that meekness for all around us. It shows it to them. But why am I to act this way? Why? We actually have an explanation here. Notice in verse 3. 
4. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. The reality is we were just like them when Jesus saved us, as we're going to see. And that's why we should treat them the way Jesus treats us. We should treat them the very same way the Lord Jesus treated us when we were saved, because we were just like them. We were, it's not justifying their behavior. It's not justifying my behavior before Christ. It's not justifying wickedness. Jesus had to die on the cross for my sins and yours. Not justifying that. But here's why, and here's what should motivate us to see things differently in relationship to those who are so evil and so hateful and so malicious and whatever it might be. This is where we should see them differently. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. This should motivate us because we were like them and God was kind to us. The kindness of our God. He was kind to us. Uh, you to be kind and gentle to them. You represent him. Be kind and gentle. Doesn't mean we don't speak truth. Doesn't mean we don't share the truth of judgment and salvation in Jesus. But we need to be kind. See, our former life is a motivation uh, to righteous behavior because we used to be like them. For we also once were. Powerful statement. So easily forgotten. We also once were. We were the same. We were continually habitually in the past. That's what this verb is in Greek. We also once formally were. We were. You see, this levels the playing field. Uh, it links every believer to what they were before Christ and I need to share that uh, that uh, God shares this reminder of our former life apart from Christ and contrasts it with our salvation to motivate us to treat people differently. To treat people differently. So let's take a look. There's four things. He's going to give us a, scripture, a description of what every one of us was like. First of all, he says, For we also once were foolish ourselves. We were... It's an imperfect tense in Greek. It means continually, habitually in the past. Our identity was based on our actions. Before we were continually, habitually foolish ourselves. We were fools. The term foolish here speaks of lacking understanding. We were without wisdom. You see, this is the way we used to be. We were ignorant. We were ignorant fools who were hardened in our sin. We were ignorant. Don't pat yourself on the back and think you became knowledgeable enough to come to Christ. Some people read those books and, you know, there's a gospel in there, so praise the Lord, but that I did this investigation, I did this and this, and I finally figured out that I need Jesus. No, God finally convicted you. You finally got convicted of your sin, and you turned to Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. We were fools. We were fools. Is this not what the Apostle Paul does when he shares in Ephesians chapter 4 to motivate us towards right behavior because of the way we used to be and shouldn't be? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. It's good to remember the way we were so we don't be like that and it motivates us to actually be like Christ. 
Ephesians 4.17, this I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer like the Gentiles walk. Don't walk that way. And here is this foolishness manifest in their, in their in what we see here. In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. But you didn't learn Christ that way, right? Don't walk that way. Don't walk that way. You see, if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, you are by definition foolish. You are ignorant to the truth. You are foolish. We all were once foolish. And apart from God's grace, love, and mercy, convicting our heart of sin by his spirit through the gospel, we were foolish. We didn't get it. We didn't get it. Non-believers don't understand. They're foolish. Don't contend with them. Be forbearing. Let your gentleness be demonstrated towards them. Why? Because you used to be just like them, and God saved you. We were all without understanding before Christ. And this is where uh, we should not try to talk people into the kingdom through apologetics or whatever it might be. It falls so short, they need to hear the gospel. Now, there might be a conversation along that line that leads to the gospel. That's fine. But we can't use a system to talk someone into believing the truth. They need to hear the gospel. Not be, they need, need to hear the gospel and it's the power of God and salvation. Not that evolution is, evolution is not true. It isn't. But that's not what's going to win them or convince them. They're foolish. They're darkened in their understanding. And notice, not only were they fools, we were also fools. Or were, were the, Are they foolish? We're foolish. Notice, he says, disobedient. Disobedient. That really speaks for itself, right? We were rebels also. We didn't obey. We were rebels. We didn't obey. We were continually habitually disobedient. We were. When you contend, brother and sister, with a non-believer expecting them to obey, expecting them to be wise and knowledgeable towards God, don't do so. Forbear, be gentle, because we were once like them. I'm not saying that we don't call sin sin and we don't share the gospel. I'm not saying that. They need to know there are consequences for their behavior that they are stuck in, that they can't get out of. But there's a God who will deliver them if they'll repent and believe in him. But we were just like them, so don't contend. We were just like them, don't malign. We were just like them, show consideration, be gentle. Right? So we were foolish and disobedient, but also, notice, we were passively led astray. He says here, we're led astray. The term uh, deceived is what we have in our passage. We were also once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived. The term comes from the Greek word plano, planao. It speaks of wandering or straying. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We all strayed. We were led astray, passively in a sense. We were continually, habitually led astray. Revelation 12:9, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who's called the devil, who deceives the whole world. We were deceived. We were deceived, you see, and possibly even deceived by the devil's servants, false teachers. Paul says to Timothy, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The apostle John makes it clear that many deceivers have gone into the world, 2 John 7. Indeed, elders are to hold fast the faithful word, Titus 1, because there are many rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers. What about Romans chapter 16? That's directed to believers. 
Let me turn to Romans 16. Now I urge you, brethren, Romans 16, 17, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. We shouldn't be unsuspecting. We should know they're out there as believers, right? But before we were saved, we were continually led astray. We were continually led astray. We were in a continual, habitual state of being deceived before we came to Christ. James 1.26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart and this man's religion is worthless. We were deceived to believe that we could live without consequences. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, this he shall also reap. We were deceived to think that we wouldn't be judged when we died. As much as it is pointed to man wants to die and then comes the judgment. 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no man deceive himself. If anyone thinks he is wise in a sage, let him become foolish, that he may become wise. Do not be deceived. Let no one deceive you, right? Believers, we shouldn't, but we were fully deceived beforehand. So what's the point? Remember before Christ, we were continually, habitually led astray and deceived. So why do we contend with the deceived? Why do we contend with them? Why do we malign them? Why do we speak hard words towards them when we used to be deceived also? We need to be kind and gentle, speaking the truth in love, sharing the gospel when God opens the doors. You see, that's the way we used to be, and Christ saved us when we were like that. Now notice what else what we do to, to, to be reminded of how we treat unbelievers, how, how we're to treat them, or why we're to treat them that, this way. For we were once foolish back in our passage, ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. This is the way we were. Now, the term enslaved almost sounds passive, like someone grabbed us and, and put us in chains, right? I, I like the uh, New King James translation here better. It says, serving various lusts and pleasures. It's active in the Greek. We actively served our lusts and desires. That's who our master was. We actively did it. And because we did that, and that's the way we were, and Jesus saved us, being so kind to us in salvation, we're to be kind to them. We're to be kind to them. Because we were serving our lusts and pleasures. Lust speaks of our will. Pleasure speaks of gratification or pleasure. You see, if you don't know Christ, you actively serve your desires. That's your, you're, you're a slave in that sense to that. Before Christ, we did our will continually, habitually, rather than God's will. Before Christ, we continually, habitually sought to seek and please self rather than God. That's what we did. It's pretty simple. We continually, habitually, actively served as slaves of our desires and pleasures before Christ. Now, not only did we do this, and some people might say, well, I wasn't like this, but it says we were. Paul, Paul actually includes himself, by the way. He was a religious guy. He said, as to the law, blameless, right? But he was a sinner, chief of sinners. And he includes himself here. He says, we were this way. We were this way. Notice this last phrase, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Oh, it sounds like I just watched the news, right? 
That's what non-believers are, but now it's really manifest, isn't it? Right? But we were that way. The term spending our life, diago, speaks of leading through. Lives led or spent. This is the way we spent our lives all the time. In malice and envy. Malice uh, speaks of an evil disposition bent to harm others. You know, we all understand that. When we don't get our way, we feel internally that desire to hurt someone. We don't get our way, in a sense. You know, there's a sinful malice in our hearts before we came to Christ. Little malice, big malice. This is the way we used to spend our lives. That's what God says. If you think you were really clean before you came to Christ, you are not seeing yourself rightly. This is, says differently. And then notice, we also spend our lives in the context of continual envy. term envy here speaks of a wicked attitude that's condemned in Scripture, which is characterized here by unbelievers before, and, and us before we were saved, uh, which, is man, which is a manifest resentment and malice towards the advantage of someone else. Someone else does something, well, we are angry towards that. We're resentful towards it. We're malicious towards it. You see, every non-believer let out the course of their life in some way, shape, or form with resentment or malice towards those who had an advantage over them, in some way, shape, or form. And then notice we have the word hateful and hating one another. The first word, hateful, here speaks of a demeanor of hate. The second phrase, hating one another, speaks of the action of hate. We were just hateful and we actually acted on it. Hateful, hating one another. We all lived in the context of hating, continually habitually having a dislike or strong aversion towards people in our lives who were deemed worthy of such because they were thwarting our wills or desires, right? Hateful and hating one another. This is the course of our life, absorbed in malice, envy. We were hateful and hating one another. There you have it. God's description of every believer before Christ. For we also once were. So with that in mind, what happens? Verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of our deeds, which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing, regeneration, renewing of the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly through Jesus, upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But when? But when? What a tremendous contrast. One of the most wonderful contrasts in Scripture. But when? But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. You know, all these things that we should be, it's just kindness and love, right? We should be like Jesus, right? Towards non-believers. It appeared. He saved us. Every one of us was immersed in sin on our way to hell, but God saved us. How did he do it? Through his kindness and love manifest. It was through verse verse 6, Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, God's love for mankind appeared. It it manifests. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The offer is available. You see, God's kindness and love appeared as God sent his son, Jesus Christ. He took on human flesh. He paid the penalty for our sins, which we couldn't pay. The sinless, spotless lamb of God came by God's grace, love, and kindness and died for our sins. 
and bore our sins in his body on the cross and rose from the dead. You see, God demonstrates his love for us, and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Have you been saved? You see, if you have identified with all those things that God says about you are true, and about us were true, then you need a Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's kind, he's merciful, he's loving, he'll save you. Call upon the name of the Lord. So then, we've been reminded how to behave towards non-believers because we were just like them and God was kind and loving to us and did the best thing that he could ever do for us. He saved us. So how are we to treat unbelievers? How are we to behave in their midst? How are we to treat disobedient, deceived, foolish, hateful, malicious, slanderous men and women? Well, we want to contend in our flesh. We want to speak evil. We want to not do good. But we are to be, as we see, reminded to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men because we were just like them, but God saved us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this reminder. And I pray, first of all, for anyone who is still in their sins, Lord, you are a kind and loving and merciful God. I pray that they would be convicted of their sin and they would turn to your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, save me. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. Save me, Lord Jesus. And Father, for those of us who have been graciously, mercifully saved by your son, Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, through believing in him, Father, may we be reminded how we are to behave amidst this ungodly world because you saved us when we were just like them. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.